John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. How do you make a grown man cry? Well, if it's a guy my age or older, the answer is probably to put on the 1971 TV movie Brian's Song, which chronicles the relationship of Hall of Fame halfback Gail Sayers and his best friend, Brian Piccolo. Now, some of you might think that Brian's Song isn't up to the usual cinephile standards. After all, this is a 74-minute TV movie, complete with small budget, minimal sets, and plenty of commercial breaks. And all of that is true. In fact, when John and I first discussed this movie after the death of Gail Sayers a few weeks ago, both of us were pretty sure it wouldn't make the cut. Still, I decided it was worth a watch, so Karen and I sat down to check it out, and both of us, frankly, cried our eyes out. A few days later, John had pretty much the same experience. You see, despite its limitations, and they're definitely there, this movie still works, mostly because of the incredible performances of Billy D. Williams as Sayers and James Caan as Brian Piccolo. So, if you haven't seen this film, you've got some training to do at cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream Brian's song along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, right now you could be listening to a brand new cinephile short on our favorite books. This also happens to be your last week to contribute to the National Children's Cancer Society in honor of Chadwick Boseman. Now, we've already crossed the $2,000 mark, but we still have a little ways to go before we can qualify for that matching grant at $3,000. Just go to theNCCS.org slash Black Panther to donate now. So, that's a short on our favorite books on Patreon, our ongoing fundraiser for the National Children's Cancer Society at theNCCS.org slash Black Panther, and the classic tearjerker Brian song, this Friday on The Cinephiles. I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him too. And tonight, hit your knees. Please ask God to 
love him. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I am a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a writer, producer, and host over on The Outlaw Nation, a voiceover artist, and excited uh, to be diving into a film I remember from my childhood, Steve. Well, and it's funny, you know, we have this weird ghoulish thing that we do, which is when someone passes away, I send you a text or you send me a text suggesting a movie. And this one is so bizarre because uh, we lost the great Gail Sayers, one of the great running backs in the history yeah. of football. And immediately my brain went to Brian's song, the 1971 TV movie. And you wrote back, and rightly so, this is a TV movie. It's 74 minutes long. Is this really... An episode of the cinephiles and i went i have no idea <laughs> yeah um, so i said well then maybe we should do a medium not a short not a full episode but a medium so, so we're maybe, gonna see how yeah. long this one goes and 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 even just to go like well do i i hadn't seen the movie in years mm. and so karen and i watched it that night and literally we both wept through the whole thing yeah um and so i kind of like i'm kind of happy that we're talking about this I'm not going to disagree with you. I saw it this morning before we were recording this and uh, sat there on my couch at 8 a.m. Put it right on. There's a U- there's a version of it on YouTube that you can do. And this is the original version that stars James Caan and Billy D. Williams and Jack Warden as George Hallis, the legendary Bears football coach. Uh, and uh, I got really emotional. I mean, my father passed of cancer. So when the cancer diagnosis is relayed to Gail Sayers in that moment by George Hallis, I, am, uh, I immediately got emotional. And that ending... You know, I say James Caan and Billy D. Williams don't get enough credit for the amount of great acting work they did in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Uh, you know, we see them as, oh, Lando Calrissian or, you know, the Batman movie or Colt 45 guy for Billy D. But there are a lot of great movies that he was involved in. And this is a fantastic performance. Same thing with James Caan. A lot of subtle performances in James Caan's resume at the beginning. And you get to really taste uh, his arc of a character throughout this uh, movie. Do you remember how you first came to this? Yeah, as a kid, watching it as a kid on TV. I remember, I mean, uh, Channel 7, I think, used to show uh, these movies in the middle of the day. This was before there was Transformers cartoons or G.I. Joe cartoons. They would show after-school specials, and they would show these, like, TV movies that would be in the middle of the day to enjoy. And I remember seeing this one because, of course, I was I, I was and am massively into the NFL, massively into football uh, stars and running backs. And when this one came out, I think Gale had just his career had just finished or had finished just a few years before. So he was still a name I knew ban- or heard bandied about or read in the newspaper. Uh, so I remember watching this in a rerun uh, uh, later on as a, as a child. His career just finished. His last year is 71. This came out in 71. Yep. yep. I mean, that's crazy right there. Mm -hmm. So for me, this is, you know, every once in a while, there's just a really odd story of how I first came to a film. And this one, back when I was a kid, maybe it was the day before Christmas vacation or summer vacation, the whole school would gather in the auditorium and they'd pull out the old 16 millimeter projector and you would watch a movie sitting on the floor of the gym or whatever. And I remember, I don't remember if it was Reed school or Bel Air school, but third or fourth grade sitting on the floor watching this. And it, it, it's so, it's so funny. Like there are things in this movie that you would never put on TV now. 
Yeah. You know? Oh, um, God. No. And, right. and, and that I was watching it with, you know, fourth graders or whatever grade that was that I saw this film. Um, and I watched it a ton as a kid. It just came on all the time. So even though I hadn't seen it in 10 or 15 years, I knew every single scene. Like, I was just so familiar to me. Um, you know, and this is a TV movie. Is there a big budget? No. Is there a big cast? No. Right. You know, right. it looks like a TV movie. It, it fades to black for the commercial breaks, mm -hmm. you know. Um, but there's something really special about it. And um, would you like to get into it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump into it. Uh, so we, we start off with uh, some uh, narration from Jack Warden. And he says, this is a story about two men. One named Gail Sears, the other Brian Piccolo. They came from different parts of the country. They competed for the same job. One was white, the other black. One liked to talk a lot. The other was shy as a three-year-old. Our story is about how they came to know each other, fight each other, and help each other. Ernest Hemingway said that every true story ends in death. Well, this is a true story. It's kind of letting you know what's coming. Yeah. Letting you know what's coming. And then you get this first scene where Billy G. Williams' Gail Sayers meets James Conn's Brian Piccolo, and it is immediately really funny. Yeah, yeah. You, you have this thing where Piccolo says, you know, we met before. Yeah, sorry I didn't remember. I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. Oh, golly. Hey, that's all right. I can see how you might forget, but, well, I sure couldn't. I mean, that was a heck of a talk we had, man. I said, uh, I hear we'll both be playing for the Bears. And you said, well, I'll never forget it. You said, uh-huh, just like that, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love, James Conn is so, they're both so funny in this movie. Whenever I'm feeling kind of low and depressed, well, well, I think about that advice. You know, a lot of guys wouldn't have talked to me at all, but not you. You just said, uh-huh, just like that, right out. And he responds with, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> And their characters are so interesting. And the barely speaking shy Gail Sayers and the can't stop speaking Brian Piccolo yeah. is so much fun to see. Well, and some actors have an issue with doing a role like this. You know, you know, it's quiet. Doesn't it's not really the big showy role in the piece. But Billy D. Willi Billy D. Williams plays the subtle strength, and you and the subtle just. A power of Gale Sayers. He's a very composed man who has strong feelings about himself and what he can do, but he's not trying to put his uh, energy on other people. He's very composed. And, you know, as a black man at this time, which we'll get into later when they uh, room together on, uh, on the team, as a black man at this time, that's an option that a lot of black men chose so as not to get into any kind of problems with their white coaches or other white players uh, at a time when there was a lot of civil unrest in the country. Well, and if you think about all the other roles that um, that Billy D. Williams played, he played a lot of big, bombastic, charismatic oh, yeah. characters. And this guy is someone who you can see the wheels turn and you see him processing. But he is, he is the opposite. He's so shy and so self-contained. And uh, Brian Piccolo sends him off to meet the great George Hallis, one of the great quotes of all the coaches of all time, and gives him a little, like, hey, stay away from his left ear. He's a little deaf in his left ear. See, and uh, it's a little too vain to admit it, you understand? So you got to kind of stand on his right hand side if you want him to hear a word you say. Mm. And then we go into this great scene with Jack Warden, who I absolutely, this is one of my, the greatest supporting actors of all time. Agreed. 
where he's trying to talk to his new star running back who keeps jumping around to the other ear. It's really funny. He says, I know you got moves. Well, I mean, I know you got moves, but you don't have to show them to me now. You're bouncing around here like a, like a pauper in a pay toilet. Then he realizes after they have an exchange that he is not deaf in that ear and that Brian yeah. Piccolo has been messing with him. And then and, and what's so funny is this is a buddy movie, right. you know, and buddy movies play like love stories, which is you always start off in conflict. And that's now we have a conflict and we show up at dinner. Brian is talking to him while Bernie Casey is given the speech <laughs> and he's another great supporting actor yep. uh, and he's great in this movie. And, and one of the things I really like about this film is it handles race in a really unique way, I think, for 1971. Yeah, because Bernie Casey is clearly a team leader, completely respected by George Hallis. Right, you know, and he's the captain giving the speech, and Brian Piccolo is talking to Gail Sayers when they're supposed to be listening, and that's against the team rules, and so they make Brian Piccolo stand up and sing a fight song. Oh, here's to Wake Forest, <laughs> yeah, and that's something you hear that happens all the time in sports. Uh, that they do that. They make the rookies sing the fight song to get them uh, embarrassed a little bit and uh, see their commitment to being part of the team, the willingness to embarrass yourself. But as soon as he sits back down, we see that this uh, uh, revenge, so to speak, of uh, of Gail Sayers is delivered in such a brilliant way by him putting his mashed potatoes and gravy onto the seat of Brian Piccolo so that when he sits down after singing that embarrassing fight song, he has a nice surprise for him. A nice warm surprise waiting for him to sit on, which I thought was brilliant. Well, it immediately which, establishes this is an equal relationship. Well, and that all, Brian Piccolo likes Gail Sayers for that. You yes. know what I mean? Like, like that's what he wanted. I, both of their performances are so great. James Kahn's performance just makes me smile throughout the whole thing, which I think is so key to what this movie is, because that's why it's so crushing, right. you know, when we get to where we're going to get to. Yeah. Uh, we're, we go to a practice because this is really tryouts, you know, this is training for the for whether or not you're actually going to make it on the Bears, and right. Sayers is doing really well, and Brian Piccolo is struggling, and they have their wind sprints against each other, which would get some beautiful slow-mo with the theme, and this theme plays over and over and over again in the film. Um Sayers wins the race, and Piccolo turns to him and says, I think it's working. It was working. I'm getting you overconfident. <laughs> and it's nighttime, and Brian Piccolo is practicing and talking to himself, and he and, and Sayers goes, like, what are you doing? He goes, well, practicing the halfback option. Well, see, I haven't got the lock that you have on making a team, and Alice said that they're going to use that option a lot this year. And uh, it's not one of my strong points, understand? And this is what we learn very quickly about his character is this guy is going to keep working. Yeah. That's his, he doesn't have the natural talent that Gail Sayers has, right. but he's going to work super hard. And again, we have just little moments of connection and Sayers suggests, you know, why don't you go to your left? Because right-handed guys never go to the left and that would be surprising. And he says, and Piccolo says, thank you. And I'm telling you this bit of conversation, I remembered forever as being so bizarre and so funny Hey, Sayers, I did say thank you. I know. Well, that usually calls for a response, like, uh, you're welcome, or how's your mother, or something. <laughs> you're welcome, or how's your mother? Yeah, it seems too extreme. <laughs> it's it's extreme so choices. odd. And Sayers says, how's your mother? Well, she's very fine. Thank you for asking. <laughs> and then Sayers, confused, goes, you're welcome. 
And then there's just this long look, and this is where this is what I wrote in my notes. I wrote, this is a love story. You know, this is two guys realizing that they love each other. Right, right. Um, and, b- and before people jump too far ahead here, this is based on the book that Gail Sayers wrote about it. Uh, I think it's called I Am Third. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he co-wrote the book. I mean, obviously he's the main author, and then there was a, a, a co-writer with him. Uh, so this is all from Gail Sayers' point of view, mm-hmm. these interactions and these things. So this isn't like some somebody else wrote this story to make it seem like, you know, the white man is cool and the black man had to be won over. This was very much from Gail Sayers' point of view. Uh, and he carried a tremendous amount of respect for Brian Piccolo throughout yeah. uh, this, the short time they were friends. We got another practice, and now we hear in voiceover uh, uh, Hallis and Bernie Casey and the other coaches talking about the players and the, and who they're going to cut, and they start with Sayers. Sayers? <laughs> Are you kidding? <laughs> and then they get to Piccolo, and they say, well, he's too slow, he's too light. And I don't know, Eddie hangs in there like a, like a terrier. Let's keep him on the final cut. And then we see Piccolo blow a play and get nailed, and the coach is going like, you know what you were supposed to do on the play? And he goes, well... Well, on a big draw screen right, I uh, pick up a linebacker if he's coming, uh... Unless, of course, it's Buckus, then I simply notified a quarterback sent for Priester. Yeah, Dick Buckus, who is interestingly not a part of this movie. Dick Buckus, yeah. one of the most legendary linebackers in the history of the NFL, uh, does not have a role in this movie. I don't know, because I haven't read the book. I don't know if Gail Sayers goes into any kind of detail about Dick Buckus, but Buckus is not a part of this movie. Only J.C. Caroline, which is the uh, Bernie Casey character, kind right. of stands in for the entire team, in essence. Yeah. Well, and this is the thing. It's a TV movie. You yeah, know what I mean? Right. Like, we're going to get to have one character. That's all you yeah. can afford, you know? Um, and now uh, Hallis calls Sarah's in for a meeting, and he thinks he's going to be cut from the team. What it comes down to is that J.C. had a notion here, and Ed seems to think it's a good idea. I guess maybe we are due for some changes around here. You want me to play flank and not running back? And, and what I love the way Jack Warden handles this scene, because he says that J.C. and other people have said he should do this. He doesn't really want to do it. He likes traditional ways of doing yeah, things. Yeah. But he lists, but times are changing and he's listening to his these other guys, which I love. I think that's just a great little bit of character. And the idea is that we should have people room together by position, regardless of race. And they want him to share a room with Brian Piccolo. And Sarah's goes, That's all? That's what this is about? Is that all? Yeah. I- you had me worried. I thought it was something really. This is, this is something really. And Bernie Casey lays into him. Man, you're talking about a white man, a black man, rooming together on a team that's never been done before. You're going to be called a tom by some blacks and an uppity, and he uses the N-word, yeah. by some whites. When we go on the road, man, I'm talking about we going to Atlanta, Houston, Miami, New Orleans. It ain't going to be no better than Detroit or Minnesota or San Francisco or any other town we play in. You're going to rock the boat, says... And the people out there that's already seasick. <laughs> that's a great line. Yeah. You rock the boat, people already seasick. And it's true. And the thing is, uh, the history uh, uh, that's so fascinating to look at when you do a little more research on Brian Piccolo, when he was playing at Wake Forest, um, uh, uh, one of the uh, premier black players, I think it was University of Maryland, uh, they came to play at Wake Forest. And he said it was one of the most poisonous atmospheres that he experienced in terms of racism there and his experience and he said that brian piccolo made an effort to come over to that side of the bench stand up with him and he put his arm around him in front of the wake forest fans to kind of combat this idea of the racist comments that were being unleashed on this player from the the black player from the university of maryland this premier running back wow that's great 
So this was a this was a historical pattern in Piccolo's life. This isn't just a unique thing with Sayers. He was he there was something he stood for and and wanted to fight back, you know. And I'm reminded of that scene in 42 when Lucas Black puts his arm Pee Wee Reese puts his arm around Jackie Robinson there for everybody to see, you know. And so it's just those these little moments that have to happen. And what we talk about nowadays with this idea of like, oh, you know, people we need allies, we need allies. That's what allies mean. People who are willing to stand up and say, no, this is wrong, and embrace. Uh, people who are complaining about the issues that are happening in our world, and it's important to be embraced and not embraced that, and not embraced in a way that draws attention to yourself for your own uh, means, but it, that draws attention to the issue. And I think that's important. And this always happened through the history of time, and politics has never been out of sports or out of entertainment, ladies and gentlemen. It's so funny. I'd never heard that story. And as soon as you told it, of course, my brain went to the same thing was Pee Wee Reese and Jackie mm-hmm. Robinson. And the thing that this has made me think of is like, yeah, we always talk about the Jackie Robinson story. We always talk about these or Muhammad Ali or Jack Johnson right. or whatever, these big, big events. Um, but those events don't normalize things because right. they're so unique. It's Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers that normalizes. You yeah. know what I mean? To say like, oh, this isn't a big deal. And that's one of the great things is that for, for these two characters, it's not a big deal. They totally like each other. They're just really, really good friends. And I love the next scene because Piccolo is convinced that he's going home and he's getting ready to write to his wife. And he's like, I'm not going to make it. And then Sarah says, well, we're going to be rooming together. And they, you know, they brought me in the coach to ask me and Piccolo's like, well, it's sort of a shame. He couldn't ask me how I felt about it, isn't it? It's Sarah's finally says to him, you know, the fact that they are doing this rooming together thing, it means we both made the team. That's right. Isn't it? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that just takes a while to settle in yeah. <laughs> to Piccolo. Um, and then they say, well, let's go out and celebrate. And they run right into some hazing from yes. the Bears. Yeah, which is great. Um, we cut to game footage. It's it's their very first game. One of my favorite things to watch in sports is watching a great runner. Like mm. that is just, uh, you know, whether it's Jim Brown or, you know, whoever it is. Like, And Gail Sears is one of the most fun people to watch. Yeah, yeah, because he makes moves that are brilliant in the moment that they're happening. And most running backs don't think to do those moves in those moments when they're confronted by that. I mean, his ability to run through an entire defense and make swaths of players miss as, with a simple juke or taking their na- or going contrary to their natural energy and knowing exactly when to go contrary so that they go right by him uh, is it was in- is incredible to watch and that's in the in this film right. you see a number of uh, actual highlights of Gale Sayers uh, running through uh, through these defenses and just incredible Barry Sanders did the same thing which is why people reminisce fondly about Barry Sanders his ability to be able to turn on a dime and uh, go straight out Dick Buck has said. Gale Sayers, even in practice, he had this ability to go so fast and stop for just a second and then go just as fast in the other direction. I never had a clean hit on Gale Sayers in my entire time as wow. a, in practice as a member of the Bears. And that's one of the great, you know, tackle great linebackers, you know, the great linebackers of all time. Well, there's a quote, which I, I can't get exactly right, but I've never forgotten this 
and this quote comes from, strangely enough, from Bill Cosby. Because mm. Bill Cosby played against Gail Sayers when Bill Cosby oh, was right. at Temple University. Temple. And what he says about Gail Sayers is he says, I had him. He was right in front of me. <laughs> and then he split in two. <laughs> <laughs> two Gail Sayers ran on either side of me. <laughs> which, great description. Which, whatever we think about Bill Cosby at this point, that's a great line. And we get more uh, highlight films of, of Gail Sayers playing. And by the way, uh, his rookie season is one of the great rookie seasons of all time. Yes. He, he scored 22 touchdowns in his rookie season, and he, he scored six touchdowns in one game Yeah, in his rookie yeah. season. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and as we're watching these highlights of the films, uh, we hear a uh, voiceover where Piccolo says, Hey, uh, yeah, when you, when you run, do you think about what you're doing or you just do it? I just do it. Yeah, well, just start thinking about it, will you? I want to play some, too. <laughs> then we go to dinner with the wives, and, and, and they're obviously, we can see all four of them are great friends, and, and James Caan is telling a story, and it is just hilarious. And the story is about they run a trap play with Sayers, you know, which means that the defense all shifts to one side and you or the offense shifts to one side. You want the defense to shift with him. Sayers makes 43 yards. He's tired. They take him out. They put Brian Piccolo in and they say, let's run the same play again. I love James Gunn's description. Trap play is also called a sucker play because it makes the defense look real bad when it works. Now, defenses do not like to look real bad. See, it makes them kind of surly. <laughs> so anyway, all the linemen go this way. And it's like I am looking at a team portrait of the Los Angeles Rangers. <laughs> hey, Deacon. Merlin, how's your family, Rosie? <laughs> it's great. And who's referencing is Merlin Olsen there from the Rams. For those of you who are old enough to remember Merlin Olsen, he was a lineman for the Rams. And then this next moment is so funny because his wife said that he was totally bruised up. He was black and blue. Um, and Gail Sayers, in a very quiet voice, says, It's like... I remember with the color play again. <laughs> and there's a pause. And then Gail's wife says, Gail told the joke. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love just the reaction like, oh my God, the shy guy actually told a joke. Hey, Chicago. Chicago. Sarah speaks. He speaks. And uh, Piccolo's wife in that in that is uh, Shelley Fabre, who's uh, mm. the co- who's the wife of Coach Craig T. Nelson in the show, and of course oh. had, her, had her song um, Johnny Angel. That's Shelley Fabre as well. If oh you, wow! Song. Yeah, yeah. So she's in that. And also one last casting thing: the assistant coach. That's the Lebowski. That's Big Big Lebowski. Oh my God! You're right. Yeah, that's him. That's, that's big, hilarious. Young Big Lebowski there, uh, in uh, as assistant coach to Jack Warden in the film. So I was like going crazy. I was like, oh, I never seen him as a young man. Wow! Or I don't remember because of the, the movie. And, and then you know we we watch more uh, gameplay and we hear all of the horrible racist letters and messages these two guys are getting. It's time for the Rookie of the Year presentation and. Brian Piccolo is going over Gail's speech with him, making sure he gets every word correct and that, you know, that he doesn't freeze up and they announce his name and he goes up and he takes the trophy and he starts doing the speech. I'd like to thank you all for this honor. Though it's not really right. And then he looks up and sees the audience. Total freeze. (laughs) Piccolo's like mouthing the words, trying to, trying to get him to say something. And he just goes, thank you. And then he leaves. <laughs> okay, and so the scene coming up, we're at training, and it's 
I, I feel like we got to say something a little bit in advance because there's going to be like a racial joke. And, sure. you know, it's something that we always talk about on the cinephiles because times change. Yeah. You know, and there's some movies where we look at them and we go, oh, that's kind of painful or, oh, you know, like we were talking about how Hitchcock treats women or we're talking, yeah, you know, right. you know, things like that. Or Tarantino but, even. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, but there's other things where you got to look at what the intention was at the time and mm -hmm. how we judge it. And the, the big thing I was thinking about, like the intention of this movie is to say that this friendship is like post-racial, you know, that, that they're just so beyond that. And these guys love each other so much that they can make these jokes and that's totally okay. And it, the yeah. jokes are what make you see how not racist they are. But right, looking how at comfortable today, and how exactly. much they trust each other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but looking at it today, we go, oh, this is kind of uncomfortable. And what it made me think of, right. strangely enough, is I went, man, there are these seminal moments in art where they move the ball forward in terms of things like race, and yet looking at them from today's perspective, they look terrible. And the, you know, the biggest one being Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know? Mm -hmm. A book that's maybe as responsible as Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln for the abolitionist movement, and yet you read that today, and we obviously know what the term an Uncle Tom means and what it's come to mean, and we go, oh, you know, Huckleberry Finn was banned from schools because it showed this friendly relationship between a slave and this kid, white kid. And today it's banned from schools because of its constant use of the N-word. So its intention was to be progressive and looking at today, it's regressive. Right. Yeah, and, and, and this is the way it goes, isn't it? I mean, we it, part of progressing and moving forward as a country is that things that were progressive at the time that they were released become antiquated after a while because we move past that being uh, the definition of progressive and move into a more expansive version of progressive. It's no different than like... Let's see. Let's make a sports comparison, right? Like at the time, the passing offense, the first time Homie threw a pass, you were right. like, oh, my God, this is revolutionizing uh, offenses. Uh, nobody's ever done that before. And then you try to run that offense five years later and you'll get absolutely destroyed because the innovation of that uh, is antiquated. And it was great at the time and it was certainly groundbreaking. But now it's uh, it's uh, past its time. So you have to adjust and change with the time and that's part of it and thank god the worst thing is if we went backwards where stuff like that was banned because it was too progressive that would be heartbreaking wow what a great analogy that's i'm so glad you said that i never hmm. would have thought about it that way but that's what it is is like there's this attack on racism yeah. and at the time it's advanced and amazing and then later on it's antiquated. That's a, I love that sports metaphor. Yeah. And the other one I wanted to bring up, uh -huh. because it's a movie you and I have talked about doing since the beginning of The Cinephiles, hmm. and it is my favorite Mel Brooks movie, and that is Blazing Saddles. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Blazing Saddles, man, it its whole intention is to attack racism. Yeah, yeah. But the way that it does it is a way – it's constant use of the N-word. Yep. It's playing into all these stereotypes and exploding them and, you know – yeah. I think it's a really good movie, but I don't know how we can talk about it on our show. Yeah, we'd have to put it in historical context every single time, whatever's yeah. happening in the film. Because, I mean, the N-word is used pretty liberally in the film. Constantly. Uh, supposedly to like make fun of people who are using it. But by the end of the film, you're, you pretty much like most of the characters who use it. So it's a confusing place to be in when you see that. So I think that's the thing that nowadays you try very hard to make sure that the people who use those words that are so offensive are legitimately 
offensive people in your media or in your project so that it's not confusing. Well, well it's a, it, I mean, but this is the, I think in a weird way, Blazing Saddles is very sophisticated because it's making you understand that these, this group of people who are using it about Cleavon Little right. are horrible, awful racists. Right. And then you see them sort of turn around on that. And, but then also Cleavon Little uses it and the way he uses it and right. even the way Gene Wilder, I think, uses it, that we're saying this is different and it's making you examine this whole thing. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think, you know, and I, I know this is there's just one joke coming up and they use the uh, what I'll say is an, the S word about African-Americans in a yes. joking way. Um, and then there's another scene that's going to come up later where it is a lot of use of the N-word. And mm-hmm. I think it is – its whole point, again, is to show how much these guys love each other. But but for the show, you know, normally I say mm-hmm. the lines or you say the lines of a yeah, character yeah. in the movie. I don't want to say these lines. <laughs> no. And then I don't even know that I want to play the lines, mm-hmm. you know, because I know that, you know, even hearing those words for some people can be very troubling. And, and yeah. You know, and so I wanted to point it out, and now we can get back into, you know, 1971 <laughs> and that viewpoint. Um, it's another game, and that's when Gail Sears gets hit in the knee. Yeah. And this is the real footage, and it's really brutal. Yeah. By the way, they do a really – it's a totally low-budget TV movie, but they do a really good job intercutting the sideline stuff yeah. with the actual real footage of the game. I think they do a really good job. I mean, the fact that they were able to get those guys to be on the sidelines during an actual game and yeah. shoot scenes during an actual game to give you that vibe, that atmosphere, I thought was brilliant. I mean, it seems so natural to see James Conn on the sideline, see uh, Billy D. Williams on the sideline and what have you, and even Jack Warden when he's playing George Hallis on the sideline. It feels it gives a little bit of authenticity to the film as well. Well, and the fact that it's just about events in the late 60s, early 70s, and they shot it in 71. Yeah. So whatever game they were on the sideline on, it was exactly the right time period. You know what I mean? They didn't have to right. fake anything. Um and now we have a car pulling up to the house and Gail gets out with his crutches with his wife. And he is being a classic injured macho jerk, you know, <laughs> Let me help you. Oh. he's short tempered and he's, you know, angry and defeated. And then we're in the house and we hear Brian Piccolo singing that fight song that he sang at the meal back in the beginning of the movie. First runs, there are many unrivaled by any. And he's down in the basement and he's got a leg lift machine and he's like, I'm going to get you back in good health. You ought to be afraid, Gail. I am not afraid. I'm just tired of being bugged by reporters. Linda, you. Hey, you know, you are a real charmer, Sayers. I mean, an absolute saint. Look, maybe you think it's a real friendly thing to do. Hey, you can stick that in your ditty bag, too, you dumb jackass. This is, it's a great scene. Yeah. Oh, it's a fantastic scene. Because what he says is, like... Every place that I've ever played, I've been really good, and I've always been number two. Mm. Always. I worked my tail off at uh, Forrest. In my senior year, I led the nation in rushing and scoring. I mean, I led the entire nation. And yet now he shows up, and who's on the Bears with him but Gail Sayers, and he's number two all over again. Right. And he says, Well, old buddy, I'm number one guy now, but for all the wrong reasons. Unless you come back 100%, people are going to say, uh, Piccolo get in on a, on a pass. Lucky break. 
See, I, I don't want it like that. I'm gonna whip you, Sayers. But you gotta be at your best. I won't mean a thing. You're not gonna be one second slower, one degree weaker. I am gonna work your tail off to get that leg back in shape. For my sake. You got that. It's a great scene. It is. The great ones don't want to have stuff handed to them. And especially someone like Brian Piccolo, who we've seen Steve from the beginning of the movie be presented as a guy who is a terrier who fights for what he wants, doesn't want to be handed anything, wants to earn his his status. And so to have him be handed the number one running back position uh, by default because of the injury to Gale Sayers isn't a sense of accomplishment to him. So he wants to earn it and and, uh, and uh, have Gale back full strength. But it's also a way of motivating Gale. Exactly. Kind of like work out and get back into shape and blah, blah, blah. Because he knows he's not better than Gale Sayers. So it's his way of motivating him uh, and uh, getting him to uh, embrace his position as the number one running back. And, you know, Steve, when you've been a and, – and Gale was an incredible college player and you get hurt that quickly into your career – it can really mess with your confidence. You, nothing's ever stopped you before. No right. lineman, nothing. And then this one injury could threaten your entire career. You know. I think what's so interesting is that the character of Brian Piccolo, he comes off as this you know super extroverted, always joking, yeah, yeah. you know, sort of silly, funny guy. And I think in this scene, what you said is exactly right. Is everything he said about his motivation is true. Yeah. But it's also a very conscious manipulation to because for his love for his friend to help his friend out. And I think what it reveals is that Brian Piccolo is a deep guy. Yeah. He doesn't show it to everyone, but his wife knows it and Gail knows it. Right. You know, we and, and what we see later on is how all of this joking is a facade yeah. to protect himself, you know. Um, and then we cut to and again, this is a scene that you could never do today. There's a you right. you might find it completely offensive because it totally uses the N word in a joking way. Mm-hmm. And it again, it's weird to me thinking about I watched this when I was nine years old, you know? Yeah, right. Like, but what the scene is, and I don't think I'm gonna play it because I you know, I I always feel I have no problem putting, you know, swear words on the cinephiles. Mm. But I do worry about playing the N word on the cinephiles. I don't know, you know. I agree. Um like but 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 here's leave it out. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. Yeah. But, you know, the basic joke is he's trying to motivate Gail Sayers on the leg lift machine to do more work. And just like dudes do, you start to go, come on, wimp, you know, and you start to insult someone to get them angry. No way. God, don't bone me, man. Come on. Hang tough. Five more and that's it for the night. Come on. Five more. Come on, get tough. And as he's laying on insults, he calls him the N-word. Yeah. And... Gail Sayers' reaction is just to crack up. Oh, man, don't make me laugh, please. (laughs) (laughs) Too much. He thinks that is the funniest thing in the world, that his his best friend, who's totally not a racist, would use this word. (laughs) 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 And his wife comes down there laughing hysterically, and she goes... What's so funny? And Gail, in hysterics, says, He wouldn't believe it, baby, but he... Brian tried to call me a... <laughs> so look, I, I think it's a funny scene. Yeah. I also think today it's a problematic scene. Oh, yeah. 
And I go like, well, this is what part of being a cinephile is maybe, is to be able to look at a scene in a movie mm-hmm. and, and understand and appreciate it for when and where it was and then also have thoughts about it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I mean, our job is to offer as much historical context as we can uh, when uh, confronted with these kinds of scenes or these kinds of moments in films that were from the past. And we also have to provide context, not just historical context, but context. Their whole approach to this movie at the time, remember, this is, what, three years coming out of the seminal uh, year of uh, the civil rights movement and assassinations and all of this that's happening here in the country. This is 1971. So the goal here is to unite people, is to remove uh, the, the barriers and the divisions and to bring us back together. Um, so that we can heal as a people and move forward and, and achieve that utopia of equality and no racism and acceptance. And a part of a way to do that, because, I mean, Gail Sayers is not going to say, you know, um, offensive, white, stereotypical names. Unfortunately, the media at the time, and maybe even now, well, I think less so now, but certainly media at the time, I think people would have lost the message. White people they were trying to reach with this movie would have lost the message if Gail Sayers was saying terrible um, racist stereotypes about white people. I mean, the rhythm thing is something, but like if he had gone into Cracker or if he had gone into uh, you know doing a hillbilly voice or whatever to try to imitate James Caan and mess with James Caan, I think that for the people at the time and the public at the time, they would have lost the message. And unfortunately, that's the sad truth about for many decades in this country is the black man or the black character, male or female, has to be the one that endures a little bit of the racism, even playfully so, and laughs it off so that you can destroy its power and then everyone can feel comfortable around each other. Uh, And I think the intention here is to show that, hey, Gail Sayers laughing at him using the the n-word is uh is diminishing its power even though you understand that he's trying to or uh uh, piccolo is trying to use it in a way to motivate him him laughing at him just kind of highlights the fact that they're beyond that kind of thing they're beyond that kind of thing piccolo resorting to it is a desperate measure to motivate him but they're past it and you hope the country in 1971 is moving past it but sadly that is not what happened and nowadays uh, I think people are more hyper-aware of how you use that word, no matter what context you put it in, which is why I give Spike Lee so much validity when he gets mad at Quentin Tarantino for using it. Yeah. I'll still go see a Quentin Tarantino film, but I'll gladly support Spike Lee's anger at it because he is a black man who has made a living off making movies that are supposed to advance our understanding of racism in this country. Not all of them, but certainly a majority of his films are supposed to... Uh, uh, highlight that. And I think his anger is absolutely warranted. I, I think those are such good points. And the thing that you made me think of, and, and I think this yeah. is, again, important for historical context, is uh, this is a movie created by white people that was essentially made for a white audience. Yes. Because if you think of this is network television, this yep. is the big three, they are going for the majority of America. Yep. And particularly at this time, the the viewer that they're picturing in their brain is white people. Right. And so like the what what white you said, suburban people. White suburban people. And yeah. so what you said about you know the African American man having to play this off and having to laugh this off to make it palatable. Well, that's really what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so it's not you know, and it's the same because we talked about this. You know, the same thing we talked about um, the heat of the night versus Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Right. And like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is a movie that's made for white people to make them feel comfortable with changes in race relations. Yes, that's what's and in this scene and this 
friendship is making you go like, oh, it's okay for this white man to be friends with this black man. Right. It's okay with this black man to be friends with a white man. They can joke about race because they're moving past it. And doesn't that feel good and make us all feel good about ourselves? Right. And, and what it doesn't do and, – and because like the th- question that's sort of in my mind is while I think it's a funny scene and part of it is because – James Conn and Billy D. Williams are so great yeah, yeah. at playing this that True. it just makes me laugh. But if I was a black man, would it make me laugh? Would it make me laugh in 1971? Right. Would it make me laugh today? Or would it make me angry? Yeah. You know, because it's that, you know, that thing we've talked about of just what it's just what you said. Hmm. The African American man has to laugh along to make other people feel comfortable. Right. Uh, there's a whole Malcolm Gladwell podcast about the um, Sammy Davis Jr. roast Mm. and about that relationship between Sammy and those guys because they spewed nothing but racist jokes. And those days are over, I think, in our entertainment and especially after Black Lives Matter. I think all of that is done in our entertainment. And anybody who tries to do it, I think, is rightfully vilified or called out for it. Enough is enough with that crap. It's like it's time to really deal with it for real and present it in actual. It doesn't mean you can't. I I think it doesn't mean you can't, like, with your friends. Lord knows I've taken some bars from my friends, like, where they make jokes about my Latino stuff. And I'll make jokes about them or certain things, um, you know, playfully because that's within us. But to put it in the media, you have more responsibility to portray something else in the media that can influence people in a positive way. And you have to take responsibility for that. Well, and I want to go back to your sports metaphor because I think mm. it's so good. Mm-hmm. Is that is that in 1840-whatever, yeah. you know, Uncle Tom's cabin was the best way to move the ball down the field. Right. And it made – it humanized the slaves in a way that hadn't been humanized for white people yeah. and, and helped the abolition movement. In 1898 or whatever it was, Huckleberry Finn was that thing. You know, in 1974 or 1971, it was Brian's song. In 1974, it's Blazing Saddles. Right. In 1988, it's Do the Right Thing. And that's a completely different, you know, the strategy that we're going to need to move the ball down the field. And today, right. I think it's Black Lives Matter. Yeah. You know, yeah. like yeah. that the, 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 the game has changed. Yeah. And what is necessary has changed. Yeah. I think it's Atlanta. Um, yeah. I think it's uh, Insecure. I think it's all a lot of these shows that have been euphoria, even a lot of these shows that are successful with black leads, showing you the black culture, showing you the black life in this country. And if it's your responsibility to watch this stuff, I really do feel that way. So, yeah. yeah. And it's a movie we just talked about because it's Black Panther. Yes, absolutely. Black Panther. And there's no question in my mind of what the intention of the filmmaker is here. Yeah. The intention of the filmmaker is these guys love each other. And this movie is certainly aware of racism because that's one of the themes that's going on. Right. But it's also that these guys clearly love each other so much that they can joke about it. And that's how it's handled by these characters, by this film in this yeah. time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it also is a scene that we would never do today. No. You know, true. Very true. Yeah. And there was a remake of this in 2001, I think. Did you see it? No, I have not seen it. I mean, I, dude, this is this one's a classic, so I yeah. can't really. Mackay Pfeiffer plays Gale Sears, and I don't know if they maybe changed some of those scenes around. So, well, who? Knew, I mean, you know, this was that was that was a theatrical release, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, no, it was a TV. It oh, was, it was also TV. A TV movie. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and now but this Gale, one, this one got a theatrical yeah. release, Steve. Actually, yeah. later on, after it screened in uh, as a TV yeah. movie. Yeah. Um, uh, it's the first TV movie I think that that ever happened to. Um, sure. Um, and now they they're running together, and they they have a race. And first Brian cheats, and then Gail falls down, and there's a moment of oh no, 
And then he gets up and Gail takes off. And, and I, you know, they made a bet on whoever gets to wherever it is, buys the beer. And Gail wins because of cheating a little bit. And Brian says, I think I owe you a beer. And Gail says, I think I owe you a lot more than that. And it's not melodramatic. It's not yeah. presented with a sweeping score or some kind of emotional. It's just a straight up, like, just delivery of... Uh, of this true fact to Gail. And I love the way, once again, because Billy's doing a really subtle performance here, just delivers it in a way that is meant to resonate with you. And to the credit of the filmmaker, they don't linger on it too long. He just kind of stares at him and he goes, all right, two beers. And Steve, do you remember a time you could buy beers in the park? I don't remember a time you could get beers in the park from a stand, but maybe I'm crazy. I don't know. Well, I mean, you and I weren't buying, buying a lot of beer in 1971. I'm saying now. Do you think we could ever get two beers at the park now? No. I don't think so. Um, what, you know what just occurred to me as you were talking about that yeah. is there's Gail Sayers who is, doesn't express his emotions very well. He's just right. your basic, very quiet, shy type and, yeah. and who's, you know, afraid basically to express those emotions. And then you have um, Brian Piccolo who's the opposite. But yeah. still not express. He's using all that bluster and jokes to not express his two feel- true feelings, right. Right. you know. And so in this weird way, they're both kind of manly American, you know, strong, unemotional types that manifest in a completely different way. Yeah, we're back in training camp. Gail is back healthy again, and in comes George Hallis. Well, uh, how things look here, Coach? Good, real good. Matter of fact, there's one boy I'm very impressed. I wouldn't be surprised to see him replace you. As- Number two halfback. And Brian Piccolo knows that he actually succeeded in doing what he said, and now yeah. he's going to be the you know third stringer again. Because I'm going to make you number one fullback. Hey, Vic, you and me starting backfield. What do you say? And it is the first time that Brian Piccolo doesn't know what to say. I didn't think it was possible, but I think you finally found a way to shut him up. It's <laughs> a great one. And we see again great plays. Touchdown, Piccolo. 60 yards and a touchdown for Gail Sayers. And they're both scoring. They're both playing well, except we go to the weigh in, and Brian Piccolo is, keeps losing weight. 206 and a quarter, skinniest fullback in the league. Oh, Gibbs, I don't know what's the matter with you. I mean, first you sweat all the fat off us, then you complain that we're too thin. And by the way, James Kahn's particular physique. At this era, oh yeah, like his shoulders are so square, and his mm-hmm. body is so fit. Like he just has a really interesting body. Yeah, agreed. And then we have shots more of the game of Brian failing, and he's off on the sidelines, and he's coughing, complaining about well, there's he's hay fever and pollen. And then we're in uh, the locker room, and. Uh, Gail is like in the whirlpool and Hallis comes in. And by the way, Hallis had retired by this point. Mm-hmm. So George Hallis wasn't really the coach at this point. But he comes in and says, Gail, I'm sending Brian Piccolo back to Chicago. What? Because I've always had a policy on this team right from the start. Best players play, no exceptions. Um, and we get to the room and Piccolo's packing. And again, he just makes jokes rather than show any emotions about it. It's also pointless, Gail. I mean, I know perfectly well what's wrong with me. And Gail looks at him and he says, Gail, I, uh, I think I'm pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Billy D. Williams' laugh is great. Oh, yeah. 
And then we fade to black because it's another commercial and we're in the locker room and it's before the game. And Hallis calls Gail in to tell him that Brian Piccolo has cancer and is going to oh. have to have part of his lung r- removed. What a great acting moment by Billy D here. It doesn't overdo it. doesn't overplay it. doesn't have some break in motion. You see it wash over him, this news. And for those of us who've received that news before, it is a f- it is like... It freezes you. It shocks you so hard that you are frozen in place as you hear a story, as you hear that news, if it's for someone you really, really care about. And then his reaction to turn and walk to the wall and put his head on the wall, there's just you're helpless in that moment, right? You just kinda do you just kinda move away from that spot and try to do something and then you know, they have a conversation about who's gonna tell him. And Gail volunteers to tell him. And it's the shy guy who can't speak in front yeah. of a crowd. Yeah. It goes up, and he says, We hand out a game ball to outstanding player. Well, I'd like to change that. We just got word. And we hear that theme come in. That Brian Piccolo is... That is sick, very sick. And uh, it looks like... Uh, might never play football again man i'm crying when i watch this scene. yeah oh yeah it's just like it's and it's and it's that men not showing their emotions showing their emotions yeah and he doesn't make it to the end he says we can all sign it and take it up Oh my God. And that's the end of the scene. Yeah. And he starts crying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cut to the hospital. Yeah. Brian Piccolo is complaining that, you know. When you dedicate a game to someone, you are then supposed to go out and win it, idiot. <laughs> it's terrible, too, because that season the Bears went 1 and 15 or something like that. Oh, really? It's terrible. It's a terrible season uh, that they played uh, <laughs> that season. So, yeah, they were getting their butts whooped pretty much the whole season. <laughs> I love the line he says, you know, Pat O'Brien never said, let's blow one for the Gipper. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, James Conn is so good in this scene. Yeah. And, you know, all of the coaches are there and the team is there and they're eating pizza and they're drinking beer. And he's he's you could see James Conn putting on the joking Brian yep. Piccolo front. Yep. But you can also see that it's costing him, that it's yeah. hard. Yeah. And the nurse comes in and kicks everyone out. And it's only when... Brian Piccolo is alone that you see just how sick he really is. Yeah, yeah, just how weak he is, yeah. And there's this crushing thing where he says, you know, he's talking to them and he goes, oh, there's a girl I met. She's in for cancer, too, and I want to make sure to get her an autograph. Can you find out what room she's in? And Gail and the wife go down and they talk to the nurse and find out, of course, that that girl is dead. Yeah. And then you have some really cheesy, overdramatic (laughs) 70s TV music that hits there. Patty's dead. She passed away early this morning. It's a rare moment in the film where they kind of uh, lean into that too much. Yeah. yeah. We have another shot of uh, Sarah's returning a kickoff for a touchdown. He's one of the great kickoff return players mm-hmm. of all time. Yeah. And then he's talking to Brian, and Brian goes, he's basically coming up with a plan. Maybe I can be a kicker. Because you don't need a great amount of wind or stamina or size. And his wife says, Don't make fun of me, Brian. I'm scared. What of? What of? How can you ask me that? You yeah. know what of. Yeah. No, I don't. 
I swear to God I don't, honey. Now, look, I'm a... I'm no idiot. This thing I got's bad, I know that. But, uh, well, it's just a detour, Joy. I'm not going to let it stop me. So many people who get diagnosed with cancer say that. Remember Michael Landon was on The Tonight Show, and he's like, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to fight this to the end. So many people say that, but sometimes you can't beat cancer. Some people can. Some people can't. You know, well, and um, it's and it has very little. You know, it has something to yeah, do with fighting, right? Right, but it's yeah, right. It, it's not like oh, you gave up. It's just like eventually, it's too much. You know, eventually, it, it, it spreads and it's too much. Well, it's it's a disease that we're not in control of. You know, yeah. like, and, but what's the athlete's thing? Like, what happens when Gail Sayers has the knee injury? Yeah. He goes. Brian Piccolo, you're going to fight through this, and you're going to come back, and he does. Right. And how much adversity has Brian Piccolo fought through? Yeah, right. Always being the underdog, he's you know he right. gets described as a terrier that won't quit by yeah. by George Hallis. It's like that's why he's here is because he doesn't quit because he never yeah. quits. Yeah. That's what he does, and he's just applying that here, yeah. you know. And it's always worked in the past. Yep. Yeah. The the moment of I you know she says you know what I'm afraid of and he says I don't I swear to God I don't mm. that is such a weird true moment for me yeah. you yeah. know that he's set up because I it, it's a weird thing is like I've now watched a lot of people and families go through the process of death yeah in in, in various ways and the one thing I've learned is that everybody does it differently. Mm-hmm. You know, there's denial or pessimism or optimism or, you know, we got to do all the work or we got to, you know, yeah. it's always different. And there isn't really a right way, you yeah. know, yeah. it's just because it's such a terrible thing. It's a way that only it, the only right way is the way that works for you. You know, yeah. that's, that's the only thing. Um, we have a great watching Gail Sayers fumble and Brian Piccolo watching it going, pick it up, dumb, dummy. <laughs> well, I was going to catch it, but when it started coming down, I said to myself, I wonder what Pick would do in a situation like this. <laughs> <laughs> Brian says, hey, can you call Joyce? She was kind of upset when she left yeah. the room. And he calls and finds out that they have to operate again. They didn't get all the cancer. Yeah. They come, I think the, the Sayers go over there uh, and she tells them that, that they didn't. Yeah. And it's like, oh, the reaction from both Gail and his wife. When you hear that news, it's just like overwhelming. Well, and this that weird thing was they told the wife, but they didn't tell Brian. Yeah, so right. he doesn't know yet, yeah. and and she didn't know how to tell him. And so now we see Gail and Brian Piccolo playing that old football board game. Yeah, man, which I think I played like a long, long time ago. Um, and then this man comes in, and this scene is so terrible because yeah. he's the dude. That's there to sign the papers or whatever about the surgery, but Brian doesn't know yet. And there's just this awkward, horrible, horrible moment when he realizes, you know, oh, the the cancer is back. I've got to have surgery and what that means. And the guy is like still pushing, like, well, can you just sign this? And Piccolo loses it at him. So if you'll just sign this consent, Mr. Mr. Piccolo, putting this on. No, man, are you there? And and the guy says can, to Gail, can you talk to your friend? And Gail Sayers says, I think I'd rather talk to you. And mm-hmm. I love this speech because this is the shy guy who's not ever yeah. been very articulate. And he t- pulls this guy aside and says, Brad is a professional athlete, Mr. Billy. Professional gets into a habit after a while. He gets himself ready for a game mentally as well as physically. Because he knows those two things are all tied up together. 
and there's a clock inside. And when the game starts, he's 100% mentally and physically. And what Brian is saying is that you're scheduling the game before he can get ready. I love that speech. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. And so they decide they're going to do it after the weekend. It's going to be first thing Monday morning. The guy walks out. And we're just looking at Brian Piccolo's back. And it's a long, long moment where James Caan has to get his composure. And then he sits back down at the game. And then there's that facade is back up again. Cut to the surgery. And the doctor says, Mr. Piccolo, we're going to put you to sleep now. To which he replies, that could be the worst choice of words I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Joking to the end, man. Okay, we're we're at just the scene that made every man in the seventies cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, Gail Sayers is refe- receiving an award, but this time he does know how to speak, mm-hmm. and he says, "I'd like to say a few words about a guy I know, a friend of mine. His name is Brian Piccolo, and he has the heart of a giant and that rare form of courage which allows him to kid himself and his opponent. Cancer. He has a mental attitude." Which makes me proud to have a friend who spells out courage 24 hours a day, every day of his life. And then this man, you know, because we have to understand that hearing a man say he loved another man in 1971, I don't think anyone had ever heard that. Yeah. And there's this pause and he says, I love Brian Piccolo. And I'd like all of you to love him, too. And tonight, hit your knees. Please ask God to love him. When he goes and sits down, nobody claps. Yeah. Nothing, because it's a powerful moment that they just create space for. I think there, I, I was thinking, I think there's a connection between Pride of the Yankees, Brian's song, yeah. And then things like Field of Dreams and, you know, like, like, how do we, you know, we have these men who have been raised to not show their emotions. And how yeah. do we tap into that? And I think maybe Pride of the Yankees is one of the first. People all say that I've had a bad break. But today, today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And then this is another one, and then just slowly breaking down. It's okay for you guys to cry, you right. know. Right. We're at the hospital. Brian is sick; can barely talk. We have a split screen. He's talking to to Gail on the phone and talks about the banquet. And he says, "You know, I'm going to see you uh, tomorrow." And then his wife gets on the phone, and Gail asks, "How is he?" And she says, "Hurry, Gail, please hurry." Yeah, that's, um, I don't know, anybody who's gone through that, uh, who's who's away from the person who's going through that, has had that moment. I mean, that was my dad calling me um, when I was supposed to work the SAG Awards that year and saying to me, um, I, I think I need you to skip it to come home. And this was the man who, who sent me back every time I'd come to take care of him when he had cancer. Like, you got to go back and keep pursuing what you want to do you got to go back and when he asked me to come home that's when i knew it was serious and you know it's like that 
that's a moment you never forget, you know. And so um, this moment was very clear in the movie as the same thing. Hurry, Gail, hurry is essentially like there's only so much time, you know. Yeah, I remember the, the few weeks leading up to when my dad died. Mm. And we all we knew it was within the next month or so. Right, of course. You know, yeah. like and it, it came slightly faster than that, which is really a good thing um because the you know death from als is not a pleasant thing yeah you know and so and i I, it's funny i was actually i believe on the phone with my mom when he died Mm. or when he was in the process of dying and i remember i can still hear the tone of her voice as she's talking to the caregiver Mm. and she's on the phone with me and she goes oh i should come i should come now okay okay you know and then steve i have to go now and and my mom's a very strong person you know and very practical and so she, it wasn't that she was, she was emotional, but she was also doing what was necessary. You right. know what I mean? Right. Like, and that's kind of what we do mostly in these situations yeah, is yeah. we, and there, there, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, there's this weird detachment I feel sometimes of like, oh, I'm, this is happening. Like, uh, I'm, yeah, yeah. like I'm, I'm walking through this thing and yes. now I, there's a it's weird shock. thing. I, yeah. It's shock. Yeah. Well, it, it, I, maybe this is because I'm, you know, not the most emotional or in touch with my emotions guy in some mm-hmm. levels, but like the, I have a weird thing of, of, of like looking around and going, Oh, this is what this is like, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm here. Right. And this is real. And this is really me in this situation. And this is what, and it's always somewhat strange to me how not strange it is, if that Mm -hmm. makes any sense. Like, oh, it's just life. This is it. Yeah. You're observing Um, and experiencing at the same time. Yep. Um, And we're in the hospital room and this is the final scene. Um, And they're holding hands and he's still making the jokes. Yeah. You know, and then we get, into a moment where if if my student had handed me the script i would just go this is so cheesy and the line it's like you think about the lines in airplane where mm. they do the win one for the zipper scene yeah, yeah. you know and and which is of course a direct reference to win one for the gipper and the language yeah, yeah. is very much the same and that's what the scene is it's and yet it is so good because that line between Good and cheesy can be very, very thin. How you doing, Dick? Worse than they. And they, uh. They won't let me come. Go for it, then. I'm trying, yeah. Jesus. Jesus, God, I'm trying. Then they go into, hey, remember when you got me with those mashed potatoes? And he says, yeah, you deserved it. And they're just, and again, this is yeah. such cheesy dialogue going over. You, they're kind of going over the trap yeah. play and the mashed potatoes, the fights on all mm-hmm. the stuff of the movie. And it's just like, oh, my God, this is the cheesiest, dumbest thing in the world. But James Caan's performance and Billy D. Williams' performance are so good yeah. that it's not cheesy at all. Let me get you next train, Jack. I'll be waiting. And then Gail says, I'll see you tomorrow. And the response is, if you say so. Yeah. First time you see the wall break a little bit when he says, if you say so. Because he knows. Yeah. He knows he's not going to win. And James does such a great job here, man, because it's a high pitch. It could easily be played for cheese or played for too much melodrama, but he plays it so 
authentically in the high pitched voice, struggling to breathe, struggling to speak. You know, that's that's what it will sound like. That's what it would sound like. I mean, my dad was super tired. That's what it would sound this high pitched kind of conversation. So, you know, it felt so authentic. Uh, it's such a great job. You know, what's Conn. interesting that just occurred to me is that mm. James Conn is a very powerful personality. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, and he's Bombastic. in a lot of movies where he plays like, you know, Sonny yeah. Corleone. You yeah. know, it's like he plays these intense, powerful people. His two performances of for me are where he's most vulnerable, which is mm-hmm. this one and Misery. Oh, yeah. Misery is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And so it's like taking this person who's so dynamic and so energetic and so masculine and powerful yeah. and then putting them in these situations where they're vulnerable is pretty amazing. Yeah. His wife goes to him and he, he tells her he loves her and he says, who'd believe it, Joy? Who'd ever believe it? And we hear that theme played in a strange, dissonant way. And then we hear Jack Horton again. Brian Piccolo died of cancer at the age of 26. 26? Yeah. But when they think of him, it's not how he died that they remember, but rather how he lived. How he did live. And we see the freeze frame of them running in slow, you know, they're running in slow motion and we see the freeze frame and then we roll the credits. Yeah, he, he, he passed away from embryonal cell carcinoma, which is an aggressive form of germ cell testicular cancer. Um, and it started out where it started out, uh, I think you can guess by the title, and then moved into his chest. And that's what eventually led to his passing. But it's a rare cancer to get. Um, and it's so, it's so crazy to think about. You could be in peak physical condition And yet something like this can come for you uh, because your body, for whatever reason, is prone to catch it and uh, um, not catch it, but, you know, I don't know, to generate it within and then you you can pass from it. Yeah. Well, this is the there is a random element of life, you know, like like there, there are many things that you get because you deserve them, whether positive or negative. Yeah. There are many things that you can work your way out of. There are many things that your character matters, and yeah. there's some shit that just happens, you know? <laughs> and this is some shit that just true. happens. True. Very true. And, uh, you know, it's funny. This movie is 74 minutes long, mm. clearly a TV movie, uh, and it clearly works. This was yep. the number one TV movie of 1971. As you said, it got a theatrical release. Mm-hmm. It played in my school many, many times. <laughs> it, it was a, you know, a perennial favorite and this is one of the of people of men of our generation and older. This yeah. is one of the, you know, great tearjerkers. Both this and the champ, the Ricky Schroeder champ, yeah. both of these films around the same times, so I think that's 76, just decimated a certain generation yeah. of men and young men. Too. Yeah. Uh, do you have final thoughts on this film? Yeah. I mean, I, I think this is one, listen, we usually cover these, um, you know, epic or, you know, uh, great films, but this is a film that's great in its own subtle way because it's a TV movie from 1971. You might think in your head like, Oh, do I really want to go back and watch a dated film? You can call it dated if you want, but when you watch this movie, it's the performances of Billy D. Williams and James Caan and Jack Warden, too, that really kind of take you on this journey and a journey of a black man and a white man coming together at this time. And look, that's still resonant nowadays in 2020. So this is a film that still holds up, that can still teach you lessons, that can still give you hope 
that it's possible to bring people together uh, and that people can share uh, an experience because they're doing the right thing. And this and courage, this idea of courage, it doesn't matter how long you live. It matters what you do with the years you have. Uh, and so there's so much to take away from this movie to watch and enjoy and savor and remember and maybe even be reminded of for those of us who've learned this lesson multiple times to be reminded of the lesson of courage or the lesson of standing up for something bigger than yourself or of, you know, being able to freely express uh, a connection with a friend or or someone you love uh, or maybe even patching up a connection with a friend or someone you love because you have those memories uh, that you built together as friends. So um, if you're, I would encourage anyone who's hesitant to watch this or hasn't watched it in a very long time to go back and revisit it. It's an hour and 15 minutes of your day. You can spare that to watch it. There's a link on YouTube. You can watch the whole movie on YouTube uh, and enjoy these performances and enjoy the lessons of this movie. So there was something that someone said on Facebook, I think it was, and it was a comment that kind of stuck with me, which is they said something like, you know, I love the podcast. They do kind of focus mostly on dad movies or something <laughs> like that and or, 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 or old man movies or something. And, and it, it hit me kind of strong because I, I got to kind of own it. I mean, there, you know, that I think there's some truth there. You and mm. I pick the films and there's, you know, F- Field of Dreams and Star Trek and, you know, mm. they're a lot of stuff because they're films that mean something to me. And I, and I think as you and I've discussed, I think it's really, really important that you and I go out of our comfort zone more often and do films from different Mm -hmm. perspectives and different eras and really try to, because there's so many important films, you know, that we need to cover from different places. But this movie was special to me, you know, it was special to me as a kid. It deeply moved me watching it again it's totally a tv movie there's you know it's totally a low budget there's not this this isn't lawrence of arabia or citizen kane or a cone brothers movie or a scorsese or coppola it's none of those things right. it's it's a tv movie about two guys and their friendship and a tragedy and it worked me as much or maybe even more watching it last week as it did every time i watched it as a kid and so while i want us to expand, to continually challenge ourselves to do other kinds of films. But the thing is, I don't think John and I are ever going to stop doing movies that are special to us on the Mm -hmm. cinephiles. Mm -hmm. I think that's why we're here. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's what we think of Brian's song. Of course, we'd love to hear what you think. Just do a search for us on Facebook and leave your comments there. You can also leave your comments on YouTube where you can subscribe to the cinephiles. Why don't you subscribe to the cinephiles on YouTube and on iTunes? And after you leave your comments on YouTube, why don't you leave a nice review on iTunes? And after you do that, hey, you could subscribe to it on Spotify, too. It doesn't hurt you. And if you really feel that you need to buy anything on Amazon.com, don't go to Amazon. Go to cinephiles.net, where not only can you buy or stream every single movie we've ever reviewed, but you can also buy that beautiful OLED TV, or you could Mm -hmm. buy like maybe a refrigerator or something else very expensive through (laughs) cinephiles.net. You can support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, where every single week we are releasing our cinephile shorts. And you could also follow the show on Twitter at cine underscore files on Instagram, the cinephiles podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris and on Instagram on SR Morris one, John, 
How would people find you? You can always find me at the Roca says on Twitter and on Instagram. That's R O C H A. And you can also uh, come over to my YouTube channel, subscribe. After you're done subscribing to everything else about the cinephiles, <laughs> come on over to subscribe to uh, my YouTube channel there, uh, youtube.com slash John Roca says. See all the content we're doing film wise, sports wise, politics wise, everything that's happening over there. You can come and enjoy uh, the work we do there as well. So, yeah. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next time with another great film on The Cinephiles.